Welcome to episode 203 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and today, uh, since we've already done the news roundup for the week, uh, the episode is going to be devoted entirely to an interview with Glenn Gerstel, who is the National Security Agency's general counsel. Uh, Glenn's been on the uh, program before, uh, and uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to a great discussion. Uh, also with me uh, and uh, um, uh, contributing to the interview will be Jamil Jaffer. Jamil is the founder of the National Security Institute and an adjunct professor at George Mason, Mason University. Yeah. Well, I'm pleased uh, to have both of you here. Why don't we jump right in with uh, uh, my first question to Glenn? Okay, we're here with Glenn Gerstel, who is the uh, general counsel of the National Security Agency. He's been on before. It's great, great to see you, Glenn. Great. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here, Stuart. So, um, what I'd like to start out with, well, actually, why don't I start out with uh, uh, a personal question, which is, um, what do you do for exercise to keep yourself in shape while doing a job with this kind of stress? Um, well, the, the stress itself sometimes helps with weight loss, <laughs> so that's point one. But actually, uh, just to be uh, sort of personal for a second, I actually uh, try to force myself to uh, to go up and down the stairs a lot. It sounds pretty Pretty uh, simple, but that's... Well, that's you're on it. the eighth floor, aren't you? And the, on the eighth floor, so that helps. So uh, on one hand, it's good to be up uh, right next to the director, uh, but it also gives me a lot of opportunity to go up and down the stairs a lot. Okay. Um, so what I'd like to do, while you're going up and down the stairs uh, and you're thinking about legislative strategy, you had a big um, legislative lift this year or the last year or so, uh, which is getting 702 reauthorized, uh, and you succeeded. Uh, I, I wonder if you can tell us, I mean, obviously it had a perils of Pauline uh, uh, air to it because uh, uh, it had to be uh, extended for a short period of time, tossed into a, uh, uh, a larger piece of legislation, um, stuff was being put in, taken out right up into the last uh, minute. Um, how did that look from the inside? Uh well, it was a two-year effort, and as you, as you correctly say, it uh, had its ups and downs. Um, before getting into the sort of the details, I guess I would just simply say two um, big-picture comments uh, about about the outcome of the process. Um, so the outcome, as as we all know, I think was a ended up being a, a positive one uh, for not only the the nation's intelligence community, but more broadly for the country because it preserves what we had identified as the single most important operate, operating statute for, for NSA, which is uh, uh, Section 702 of FISA. And um, uh, so getting that renewed, extended for six years uh, is, a, is, is significant and, and genuinely will, will help keep the country safe, a very, very important piece of legislation. So that's good on the substance. And the other part that was good um, even though it, as you said, uh, had its ups and downs, was the process. Uh, we had a, essentially a sort of a two-year effort on the part of the on the part of the uh, intelligence community to help educate Congress and and more broadly the American public, and to engage with uh, a lot of folks, uh, especially people on the civil liberties and privacy uh, uh, in civil liberties and privacy organizations, who had very firm uh, views on this. So there was a, a really a robust debate, and that debate was on 
blogs. It was on editorial pages across the country. It was at speeches and conferences and venues. Um, it was on the floor of the House and the Senate, the Rules Committee of the House, the um, uh, various uh, intelligence committees and the judiciary committees in both uh, both houses. So there was there was a lot of robust debate on it. So, but I think we, I think. Uh, if I can just continue, I, th- I think I think we we came away, as I said, feeling good about the overall process and, of course, the result. But I think it also taught us a couple of lessons, at least to me, anyway, on a personal level. And <clears throat> one is uh, that I think the intelligence community did a really good job, ultimately, of conveying the value of this statute and why why we need the statute. I think at the end of the day, most members of Congress, if not indeed all, uh, acknowledge that this was a really important statute and, uh, that it was, that it was necessary and we weren't getting pushback or debate. Why do you really need this? Whatever, which, which was, is not always the case with all these national security statutes. You recall a few years before there were some questions about the old section 215 and yeah. genuine questions that were batted back and forth about the value. Uh, that really wasn't the case here. And part of that is because over a two year process, the uh, intelligence communities uh, got together and looked at whether they were able to take some examples of how this statute had actually, in effect, thwarted plots, taken people off the battlefield, led to further intelligence gains, and after a lot of effort, were able to declassify 19 specific, we call them vignettes, little stories, basically, and were able to go to Congress and the American public and say, look, here are 19 specific actual sort of case histories, case stories, uh, where this where this statute made a difference. And I think that, along with lots of other, other outreach efforts and educational efforts, made a difference. Um, I think where we, relatively speaking, were not as successful as that on the value side, I think we were successful. Uh, I don't think we were successful in making clear just what kind of robust privacy protections are already in the statute statutory scheme. And um, I don't think we did as good a job as we could have. And part of that is because it's always just intrinsically harder, maybe three, one, two or three reasons. One is it's always intrinsically harder to, to, to go around saying something's wonderful as opposed to criticizing right, something. Trust me, I'm, I'm great. Right, exactly. So it's, so there's a little bit of difficulty just running around saying, hey, everything's fine, uh, whereas uh, it's easier to point to specific problems and, and, and intimate that those specific problems are part of a larger thing. So I, I, I thought the debate in Congress in particular, was dominated by a spirit. As you say, nobody wanted to say, we want to kill this program, we want to cripple this program. If you said that you're going to cripple the program, it, it, it was a real disadvantage for whoever was making a proposal. Um, but they were absolutely determined to tweak it, which I suspect is reflecting the spirit that you're talking about. They knew it was valuable, but for a variety of public appearance uh, or genuinely heartfelt uh, uh, concerns, they wanted to show that they were doing something to improve civil liberties protection. I, I think that's right. <clears throat> I think uh, there was both a, uh, a substantive element to it, which is that there were a number of uh, congressmen senators who genuinely thought that it was important to uh, increase privacy protections in, in, in an operational way. Of course, there was a debate as to whether that would have an operational effect and what the trade-off is and so on and so forth, but there was some a, a good amount of it was substance. And I think um, just my personal view uh, is that there was also a political element to it and that a number of uh, congressmen and senators thought that it was important to make a gesture in this regard, even, but they wanted to make sure it 
whatever steps that were taken in this area didn't have too profound an operational effect. So, so I think there's a there's a that's just my personal view. Yeah, yeah that, that raises the question. So you're in a situation where there are going to be tweaks because the zeitgeist demands it, and 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 you've successfully persuaded people to keep the program largely whole. Somebody has to make the decisions about what tweaks are we going to agree to and what tweaks are we not going to agree to. I know in the old administration who that would have been. That would have been DNI and Bob Litt would have uh, been shotgunning that. Um, you had to organize. I mean, you were the um, the one with real experience uh, as of January 20. Uh, how did the government, the new administration, organize to, to evaluate the proposals and to say yes to this, no to that? So as you as you correctly point out, it's a it's an interagency process. There are uh, over 15 entities uh, in the intelligence community, uh, all led by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, but but only four in particular deal with 702 data: uh, the FBI, the CIA, the National Counterterrorism Center, and and, uh, and the NSA. And um, so those four, of course, had a very strong voice in the discussions. We had lots of interagency discussions led by the ODNI. Um, I think maybe we were a little slower to get off the ground because in a number of cases the the actual political appointees to a number of these positions that would be relevant, uh, so for example the Justice Department at ODNI and the Pentagon and, and even in the White House itself, some of the senior legal positions hadn't, hadn't been confirmed and indeed as of today still aren't, but the people who stepped into the acting roles stepped up to those, those mm-hmm. jobs quite well. Uh, I particularly would commend uh, Brad Brooker, for example, as one, as one uh, at ODNI and others. Um, and so we had uh, we, we had a debate. I, I was I was happy that I was able to have a voice in that debate as well too. And NSA obviously has a, a very strong role in that. But it was very much an interagency uh, series of discussions, ultimately led and with the ultimate decisions, of course, being made by the principals in this case, uh, Admiral Rogers, uh, Director Pompeo, and uh, then ultimately uh, Dir- Director Ray later on. So I've got one hmm. one specific question. There may have been other interesting moments, but. Uh, um, the first bills out of the box were not good from a, the administration's well, point Well, actually, the very first bills, I think, introduced by Senator Cotton and others, were, were, a, were for a straight yes. reauthorization. <laughs> those so, are fine. <laughs> so those, those, those looked, good, looked awfully good to us. Well, um, and, and for a while, uh, the administration tried to push that, and then it became clear that wasn't going to work. I think I think the opening position was that we wanted a so-called clean reauthorization and permanent, and, yes, and, and permanent, um, because and the theory was, look, if you're if you can get comfortable with this statute and understand the operational nature of it, it's crystal clear that it's constitutional. Why shouldn't we have this on a permanent basis? Why do we need to go through the effort of every X years uh, re-examining it? So that was the that was the theory. Um, it quickly became clear, just as a political matter, that that was not going to get through. Uh, both houses of Congress. You've got uh, uh, the, um, uh, the the one decision I remember uh, that was unusual is uh, all the bills came through. They got better after the uh, after we uh, were pretty clear that Tom Cotton's uh, approach was not going to uh, succeed. They got bad from most of the judiciary bills were bad, and then the intelligence committee bills got better, but none of the bills that were actually produced by the committees got passed. Uh, the bill that got passed, uh, among other things, took out the unmasking discipline provisions that had been in the, I think, House Intelligence Bill, also the House Judiciary Bill. Um, and uh, I wondered 
you know, I, I've suspected that that was a way of making the bill more appealing to Democrats. But uh, how did that decision get made and, and why? So the uh, unmasking issue became um, a, a topic of significant contention, particularly in the House and in, in the House Intelligence Committee, um, where uh, NSA and the other elements of the intelligence community uh, cooperated with uh, the, the HIPSI, the House Intelligence Committee, in, in trying to get some more information about unmasking that had occurred. This became a very political topic, lots mm-hmm. of the news, et cetera. I don't have to go over all that. But uh, suffice it to say that at the end of the day, um, at least from my personal point of view, uh, I don't think we uncovered, uh, there were no abuses that were discovered. Uh, we have no press reports or no committee reports or of anything, of any wrongdoing. I think questions were raised and they were answered and I think that I was think a... You once told me you looked at all the unmasking and requests and we, the transition. We did. NSA keeps a very detailed record and has for many, many years of every unmasking request we, we get in. There's a, re, a requirement uh, for a justification who made the request. We keep that for a number of years, etc. Um, and indeed, the regulations that were ultimately adopted, I'll go back to the process in a second, Stu, but the regulations that were ultimately adopted very much mimic uh, NSA's current procedures. So for us, the actual change in procedures is relatively minimal. There are some tweaks we need to do and some changes, but fundamentally, uh, the IC is now adopting a, a type of record-keeping and system that uh, the NSA has, had, has employed for years with one additional requirement, which is that the new regulations as did the proposed draft bill, have a special provision in that say during a the a the, the period between the election day and the inauguration of a of a new president during this transition period there's heightened sensitivity over this again going back to uh, the, some of the allegations that were made in the past election and because of that uh, there's an extra requirement that the general counsel certify in effect the propriety of uh, of, of the unmasking request and during I think that there's period. notice to the and there's some notices and there's, 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 there's some there's some extra bells and whistles there uh, which is fine but but how this occurred. Um, I think there was just a, a feeling that, uh, well, let me take a step back. In a number of cases, the Judiciary Committee and, and some of the other uh, committees that were looking and, and some of the other uh, congressmen and uh, uh, senators who were looking at this said, one way of, of giving us more comfort about the statute and how you operate it is to take your current regulations, including unmasking ones, but also ones dealing with minimization and targeting of this, and we'll just codify it into statute. And, and you should be okay with that because all we're doing is taking your current regulations and we're just sticking them in the statute. Isn't that okay? And the answer was no, it wasn't. Not because, of course, we don't agree with the substance of it. Obviously, by definition, we do. We're abiding we need by to this. be able to cha- make some changes but, from time to time without but, going to Congress. Yeah, two or three things. One is, occasionally we need to make a change. We don't have to go to get an, literally an act of Congress to change it. Two, if we violate accidentally one of these procedures, there's a procedure in them to go to the Fisk court and explain we made a mistake, here's how we're fixing it, we're, rem- we're doing some remediation, we're training additional people, we've taken whatever steps there are, and the court will oversee that process and, and at the end of the day be satisfied with it or not, as the case may be. And impose um, discipline as needed. And, and impose dis- absolutely accountability. It's it's a process. These these opinions are all that come out of the Fisk court are ultimately declassified, so there's some public accountability. But if you violate a statute... Uh, because we've now enshrined the regulations into a statute, they're now codified. Well, that's a completely different issue. And what is what's the significance of that? Are there supposed to be penalties? Is it criminal? Is it not? Whatever. Um, and it just uh, uh, and the final thing is the ambiguity, which is 
when converting regulations into statute, there was an effort made to simplify things because regulations are detailed, et cetera. So the statute was sort of simple. But wow, did that open up a whole area of risk and ambiguity in the, in the legislation. And we kept saying, because you've simplified the language, it may sound like a wonderful idea, but in fact, you've introduced risk because we no don't have, we don't, we don't have precision here. And why, what's the trade-off? Why would we, why would we want why is it good for anybody? Why is it good for the American public to have risk and ambiguity in this area? So ultimately, we were successful so in pushing you, that back. So you, you were actually eager to keep some of these things out of the statute, including the unmasking rules. Yes, and not not because of a substantive problem, but because but because we said, look, we agree with the principles. Let's have it in regulation. You have ODNI, uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Justice overseeing this, the Fisc Court. We've got the safeguards in place to make sure that this this will continue as appropriate. If we have to make changes in regulations, they, be, they become known because they go through the FISC process. So we've already got a system in place that provides protection. We don't need to add uh, inappropriate risk to it. So who was your ultimate interlocutor in Congress? I assume leadership on both sides? So, it, yes, this was, this was uh, quite extensive. It, it, uh, we dealt uh, with leadership and, of course, the senior staff to, to the leadership, to the speaker and the majority leader and, and, and minority side on both mm-hmm. cases, uh, who were actively involved in, 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 in sequencing this. Of course, as you alluded to earlier, there were uh, some misfires that we didn't quite get the original deadline, which was the end of the calendar year, so it was extended. So the, the leadership was very involved in deciding how something gets to the floor, how it's presented, how it's packaged, et cetera. Uh, they were also involved in the overall substance and looking at committee jurisdiction. And then we were engaged very heavily with committee staffs who were all very cooperative during the process. This was, this was, uh, which isn't to say that we didn't have disagreements, but this was a very collaborative process. And I, I, I felt good about that. Uh, as I said, not everybody got exactly what they wanted, but, but, uh, but I think the, the, the process was a good one and, and it ended up uh, in, the, in, in the right place. There were a number of senators and congressmen who ended up voting against the statute, however, not because they disagreed with the substance, but because they didn't like the process. And one or two of them were sort of registering in a, and told us mm-hmm. they were they're they're voting no because they're not happy with the way the bill came to the floor without the ability to amend it or alter it, et cetera. Um, so, you know, that's just part of the congressional process. I'm not going to get into that, but but as I said, there's, there, you, you can't have a perfect system here. So you talked a little bit about the FISA court, uh, and uh, I guess I, I, uh, I ought to ask, uh, and I'll ask this in a, a perfectly hypothetical uh, sense, if the FISA court believes that an application to it has not included facts that should have been included or there are material omissions or slanting of the application, uh, I... My sense was, first, um, there's hell to pay, and they have plenty of ways to carry out investigations to uh, impose sanctions on the people that um, uh, misled them. Uh, Is that something that, from your experience, you can speak to? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure why you're asking the question. Is that a topic that's in the news, or is there just, just sort of a random question that came yeah, up? Exactly. Um, un, un, uh, approaching it as just a random question that came up, uh, I would say, um, uh, again, obviously not without with, with with reference to anything in particular, but of course the court, uh, like all uh, federal judicial courts, has the power to protect its jurisdiction and to examine its own rulings and make adjustments as appropriate, including ranging from over 
ruling or rescinding of things, et cetera. But, and but, the behavior but the, of the officers of the court before it. Yeah, exactly. But, but the, exactly. And Jimmy, and that, that goes exactly to the point, which is, I, I mean, I, I know what the, the process is of getting something before the Fisk Court. It is an extremely rigorous one. We have affidavits on the NSA side, uh, signed by senior officers that are vetted internally extensively before they're signed. They're signed by senior officers under penalty of perjury. They're submitted to the court. And before they're submitted, they go through reviews, layers of review at the Department of Justice and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And, and those are the and, easy ones. I mean, NSAs, I always say that uh, um, the FBI's FISA applications read like novels and NSAs read like boring Wikipedia articles. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to comment better, on that. That's a better site of the Wikipedia article. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. Other, other than to just simply say that I've I've read the uh, many uh, NSA uh, applications, and I can uh, I, I can I can attest to their to their accuracy and validity. But they they ultimately go to the court. The court reviews them, makes a decision. If the court isn't isn't happy with it, it may ask for additional information, and we've seen that many times. They'll delay acting on something, saying we want additional information. We don't if see the probable cause if, here. If, right. if, if, they're, if they're not happy with, if, as you said, it's a probable cause standard. If they're, if they're not happy, they can, they can say that. Um, and where there's been compliance issues, um, uh, I personally have appeared before the chief judge of the court, and nobody enjoys having a federal district judge say that they're not happy with something you're doing, and so the, the court takes its its oversight responsibilities very seriously. So I guess my bottom line is this entire process of how something gets before the court, how the court considers it, the level of scrutiny it gets, and the court's ongoing oversight in this area is all very robust. I, I as a, as a outside lawyer coming into the process, I'm, I'm new to the process a couple of years ago, I was really impressed with this, this uh, just robust level of oversight. Mm-hmm. You know, Glenn, people have yeah. this perception that the FISA court is a rubber stamp uh, because of the percentage numbers um, of approvals in the court. Um, they also have the sense that sort of once FBI or NSA, an agent in the field or, or an NSA analyst wants a tasking, wants an order from the court, it just happens like that. Now, you've described some of the checks and balances in place, but tell us about the court's role. Is the court aggressive? Does it look closely at these applications? Does it scrutinize them? Do the legal advisors of the court get into it? And most importantly, if we're talking about things that happen in a sensitive context, members of the media, uh, lawyers, uh, political people, appointees or candidates or people in campaigns or whatever, is the court more sensitive to those issues? And if so, how do you see that play out with, with your lawyers and, and the lawyers of the Justice Department in that judicial process? Sure. So uh, to pick up on my earlier comment, Jamil, it's a good question. The, this is a very multi-layered, robust process. Um, uh, orders, I, I'll speak just on the NSA side, uh, um, the FBI has its own procedures and as, as do the, all the other agencies, but they're all broadly to the same end, which is providing for lots of, lots of checks and balances. Um, so, uh, we have, uh, numerous layers of oversight within, within NSA. Bef- we're very focused on the need under, for applications, say under, uh, 703 and 704 to, to get um, uh, uh, the probable cause of obviously all of the 
Title I article, Title I orders, so to speak, uh, under the traditional FISA or, or probable cause individualized orders. These, these, uh, the notion, as you said, that there's just some agent out in the field who thinks, gosh, it would be great to get a Title I order against uh, this or that uh, establishment in the United States. Let's just do it tomorrow morning and run down to the court and file a piece of paper. No, that's not the way it happens. This is often uh, weeks, sometimes even months in preparation in order to amass a <clears throat> detailed uh, detailed uh, set of evidence to establish probable cause. The probable cause standard before the uh, FISA court is exactly the same as the probable cause standard throughout the federal judiciary. There's a, there's, it's not a lower standard. Um, the judges who are looking at this are the 11 judges uh, who rotate. Uh, there's no one person. These judges are appointed um, for a term by the Chief Justice of the United States from, from the federal judiciary. These are lifetime Senate-confirmed judges. There are both Republicans and Democrats on the, on the committee, uh, on the, I'm sorry, on the, on the court, uh, meaning, sorry, judges who were appointed under both Republican and Democratic presidents. In other words, um, I don't know what the judges' individual affiliations are, obviously. Um, uh, and they're drawn from around the United States, different judicial districts. So there's a lot of diversity, a lot of opportunity, and and uh, there's a dialogue with the, the court's legal advisors uh, beforehand. How many, how many legal advisors are there? Uh, Stu, I'm sorry, I just you know that's something I don't offhand know because the Department of Justice is the one that actually that. handles the the direct uh, interface with the court. So I'm I'm not I just don't have the numbers offhand. But 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 the judges take take this very seriously. The judges personally get involved in um, in scrutinizing applications. This is this is not to use the comment you used a rubber stamp before, and and ultimately the the the. The way we feel comfortable about this is is because of a statutory requirement. It's something we want to do. Ultimately, these were the, the opinions, the decisions are ultimately made public. Um, there's a, in some cases, although not exactly on these probable cause cases, there are also <clears throat> opportunities for the friend of the court to be appointed. Um, that was just recently expanded in the legislation, so we'll have additional opportunities for outsiders to put their views before the court. And again, those will ultimately be uh, become public after. Classified information is omitted, but that's usually details. So there's a there's a pretty robust process around it. So let me let me uh, ask you uh, uh, just a couple of qu- questions I want to get to. I do want to get to cybersecurity because sure. it's, the, it's right. the problem of the day. But um, I, one more embarrassing question: um, How did you feel, and how, where where were you when you discovered? that the data that NSA was supposed to have held for the litigation in the Jewell case had been overwritten in the course of uh, uh, ordinary uh, uh, IT operations at the fort. Uh, um, And what did you do about it? Um, Well, let's see. Where was I? I was sitting in my office when one of the attorneys came in and said, sir, we have a couple of things to discuss with you. So... uh, (laughs) So we discussed it. So, um, uh, just to give, uh, listeners some background, there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, a case that has been pending for, gosh, well over a decade, uh, originally about the president's surveillance program undertaken under President Bush back in 2000, I don't even know, 2006, 7, 8, whatever, about, about earlier, um, uh, called the, the president's surveillance program, and, and it basically was a lawsuit contesting the constitutionality of that program, and it was filed against NSA and some other other defendants. And that litigation has been slowly, and, and I do emphasize slowly, winding its way through the federal judicial system to the point where we are still litigating the question of standing. And the reason I mention this detail is the the 
in order to determine standing, the plaintiffs need to have certain proof or evidence that they were affected by the president's surveillance program. And as is typical in many litigations, um, the judge, uh, at the request of the parties, issues a preservation order saying, please make sure you keep all, keep all the evidence. Well, this lawsuit started so long ago, in the days before NSA was still known as no such agency, and we weren't subject to very much litigation. As a result, at the time, we didn't really have robust mechanisms for keeping track of evidence, and the data that we collected at the time was just kept in our, our ordinary sort of corporate storage vault, so to speak, big reels of old-fashioned magnetic tape, and uh, along with other, uh, other uh, not only the ones relating to this litigation, but all that were required to be preserved, but also ones that, uh, tapes that related to just uh, lawful surveillance activities. And all of those tapes have, uh, all of that data has, um, has a requirement that it be aged off in accordance with law, and after a certain period of years, it's purged, and we don't, we don't keep it, and that's what we do. And apparently somehow in the process, the, the connection between um, preserve the requirement to re- preserve tape number 16, somehow that didn't get transmitted to the actual personnel a few years later as personnel changed, and they just simply went ahead and deleted or purged or removed um, uh, older tapes, not realizing that one of them or two of them or whatever they were were supposed to be kept to this. So there was no nefarious intent. We discovered this accidental uh, uh, error uh, reported immediately to court, to the plaintiffs, etc. I, I, I think we're comfortable that the plaintiffs aren't prejudiced by this. And one reason is we think we're going to be able to recover either the original tapes themselves and because they, they still exist and we just need to find them, or we can recover the metadata which, which is really, which is really, which is really the issue. We're not, this, is all, this was only something about the content of actual data. This was not the actual metadata. And so um, while, yes, it's awkward and we wish we had been able to fully comply with the preservation order, um, in this particular case, it sounds like it's a, a bit of a non-event and we'll hope to address the litigation. So I, I predict they will say that the appropriate <laughs> sanction for this is that their standing should be presumed. I'm not going to get into that. So but, but, I, I do want to get to yeah. cybersecurity okay. because it's... Um, you know, it's become something that everybody's grandmother knows about now. Uh, and, but it hasn't gotten better. It's, if anything, worse. Um, and, um, this is a challenge really that has become a matter of everyday American concern while you've been general counsel. Uh, and my question for you is from the seat that you have, um, how does it look? Does it look different? Do you see solutions? Do you uh, have hope, or is the light at the end of the tunnel an oncoming train? Uh, yes to all of the above. Um, so uh, <clears throat> first, from short, purely from the NSA side, um, I think yesterday uh, saw a, a good example of the uh, or good evidence of the of the of the nature of the threat because the. Um, Heads of the nation's intelligence uh, agencies were before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence at their annual threat briefing, and the <clears throat> the number one global threat, the number one global threat, uh, was stated to be the cyber threat, uh, not not terrorism, nuclear issues, et cetera, all of which are quite scary in themselves, but that was cyber, and I think that's now the second or third year that that's been the been in the uh, been the report. Um, 
from NSA's perch, uh, because of our, uh, both foreign surveillance intelligence activities. So we see what other nation states are up to and other nation states actors are up to in the, in the cyber area, as well as in our defensive role where NSA is charged with the, uh, essentially protecting national security systems, the so-called dot mill domain and, and other national security systems. Um, we're very, very much aware of the nature of the threat. So we don't need to be persuaded that there's a very serious threat out there. Um, what as about to what, solutions? <laughs> uh, yeah, as, as, so that's so, so that's easy. So I, the the analogy I've used with a couple of friends is we're I, at least this is just my personal view, not not an agency view. Is is I sort of feel we're we collectively uh, are are a city at the bottom of a dam, and uh, we can look up and see the the dam is under pressure. There's some fissures in it. Water's burst through in a couple of places, and we've been able to patch it, uh, but. We're still under the dam and we still see the cracks and so we know there's a problem and we know it's imminent and we know it's very severe. It's, it's existential. Uh, there was a lot of discussion at yesterday's, uh, hearing about the inter, the, 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 uh, Internet of Things and how soon, whether, whether we're there now or soon will be 20 billion, an incomprehensible number, 20 billion devices, Internet of Things connected to the Internet all with the potential for mischief because the lack of standards associated with them and the ability for bad cyber actors to take over them, as happened a year ago with uh, video cameras uh, being taken over by a botnet attack, et cetera. So, so we know the nature of the threat. Um, but we've been able to do something about it. And, and part of it is, and, and the reason is it's hard. Uh, we don't have a consensus. We don't, this technology has moved so quickly. The iPhone is only 10 years old um, that we don't really have analogs in our society for a technology that's gone sort of from zero to 60 or zero to 100 so quickly. If you look at the automobile, electricity, whatever, uh, other technologies that became equally impactful, equally ubiquitous, equally significant in our day-to-day life and commercial life, um, they took decades to develop. And during that period of time, as a society and globally, we figured out how do we want to regulate it. Do we want to have seatbelts on cars? Do we want to mandate them? Do we want to, is it public? Is it private? So we figured out the public-private role. We figured out the layer of government regulation. And we had time to deal with it and, and for societal norms to develop around what's private, what's not, what are our expectations of privacy. And instead, all those questions are coming to us all at once in a greatly compressed time period, and we're seeing that our institutions, and I'm not just referring to Congress, I mean our, our societal institutions are not able to address it. A couple of countries, uh, English-speaking countries, the so-called Five Eyes, um, have begun to develop a solution. Uh, they're a little more homogenous and different political systems. So the UK, some of the uh, uh, Scandinavian countries, Australia, New Zealand, have developed a more integrated approach to dealing with the cyber threat by housing a robust authority with inside their national intelligence community and trying to develop a national cyber strategy. Uh, we have not done that. We still have uh, lots of questions about where we house this authority. Is it going to be consolidated? Are we going to have a department of cyber, for example, at cabinet level? Is it something that should be in DHS, et cetera. So well, right lots now of it is in DHS, right? And the question well, yes is and whether, no. apart from the military and intelligence security, you know, yeah, I would, I would argue, I would argue that one of the problems we have, and no, not blaming anybody at all, but I, my personal view is one of the problems we have is the responsibility for cyber is dispersed tremendously. You are correct that DHS does have the leading voice, along with OMB. Um, in protecting federal government networks, the .gov domain, and generally dealing uh, with uh, with what software can be on and off uh, uh, 
government systems. Um, uh, and on the military side, it's NSA, which has that, that functional role. But even within that, when you start to break it down and get into very practical examples, well, the Secret Service has a role dealing with the financial community. The FBI has a strong role in dealing with victims and victim notification and remediation. Um, DHS, as you said, has a, has a leading, leading role, but they often rely on NSA for technical advice. So yes. we need to be in, we need to have a role there. Um, the Federal Trade Commission has a role for uh, consumer products that have a cyber element to them. Uh, when the list goes on, this, the, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission can help uh, talk about what kind of public disclosure uh, companies have to have in terms of their, how do they address the cyber threat. So when you put it all together and add, I don't know how many Congress congressional committees that have some cyber yes. jurisdiction, you have a multiplicity of effort. Fair enough. And uh, resolving that is going to be tricky. If you had, if you were king, how would you resolve it? Uh, well, obviously, I'll take off my NSA hat and just wear a personal hat here for that answer. But uh, I think personally, I, I probably, with, with some trepidation, uh, probably move to something like a Department of Cyber uh, at the federal government level. I, I believe uh, that although there's a lot of our reasons why it's important to have agency-specific and industry-specific approaches to things, and, and you'd need to find the right balance, I think this is so per- pervasive and so uh, requiring centralized leadership and centralized national strategy that I think you need something done at a national executive level, and that probably positions me personally, just my personal view, to to a something like a Department of Cyber. That that's obviously not an official position. I'm not advocating. I'm just you're asking, I'm answering your question. But, okay. So well, last yeah. last question. Uh, um, you've now gone through a presidential transition. Uh, complete change of most of the personnel at the political levels. Uh, um, you're about to undergo, sometime in the next few months, a change in the leadership of NSA with uh, General Nakasone coming in. Uh, um, are you going to stick around to train the new guys? Uh, and uh, more broadly, how's the experience been? Well, I'll start with the latter one. Uh, the experience has been fantastic. I, I had the... Uh, Good fortune to serve almost 40 years in a private law firm and, uh, and thought I had a terrific career. Uh, little did I know that that was nowhere as good as the position that you, Stu, held before me and I now hold, which is the general counsel of NSA, has been uh, really the, just the most extraordinary job in my career. And it's, and it's been a, it sounds corny to say it, but it's been a privilege and honor to, to, to serve in that position, to have, to have that opportunity. So I, I very much have enjoyed it. Um, I've now a little over the two year mark, a little about two and a half years in it. Uh, and the first year, um, was, uh, the question of finding out what I was doing. And it took a long time because as I said, I came in from the private sector, so didn't have the background. And, and after the first year, I guess the analogy I would use is um, uh, sort of like a kid in a swimming pool when you feel sort of comfortable going after down that first step and you feel, oh, I, I can do the first step and the second step. And you think you've hit bottom and then you suddenly realize, gosh, that's the, only the third step. There is another step. And then you think that's bottom <laughs> and you realize, oops, there's a fourth step. 
Um, so I'm constantly finding just when I start to get comfortable and think, okay, I've got this, that I realize, wait a second, that's not the bottom, there's another step. <laughs> um, so all that's a long way to slowly answer your second question, which is um, I'm, I'm still feeling challenged in the job in a good way. Uh, I still find it fascinating. Um, I think I'm now at the point where I'm hope, hopefully able to add some value rather than merely absorb as a sponge. And... Um, uh, it sounds like we will be having a new director at some point uh, this year. There are lots of changes in the offing still for NSA. So, but my feeling is I'd like to c- continue for as long as uh, the, the, it, it's, it's productive for me to do so. And if there is a new director, we have a, hopefully a good relationship. I always thought that uh, when I had a government job, the first nine months I was getting more out of it than the government was. And that after that, uh, the government started uh, catching up. For- yeah, I'm, I'm, we, the various people have different opinions on whether I've hit that point yet. So, so we'll, uh, I, I'm not going to comment. I, I was that. never willing to take a poll yeah. among yes, my exactly, coworkers exactly. about that. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave that to the audience to determine. All right. Uh, Glenn Gerstel, uh, General Counsel of the National Security Agency. Is there any event upcoming that you'd like, uh, our audience to know about? Um, uh, releases, speeches, anything that you want them to be watching for? Uh, no, I think, I think obviously as you've alluded to the fact that at some point we'll be having a new, new director and, uh, that'll, that'll provide a new set of, uh, a, a new, uh, some new initiatives built on, uh, some of the terrific work that Admiral Rogers already's done. And then down the road, uh, this is just public information, already public information, um, there's been, there's been talk of splitting the dual hat, so, yes. so pay attention, pay attention to that with the, uh, nothing's imminent and I'm not, giving any news here, but I'm just simply saying if, if you continue to focus on the agency because there, there's, there's continued, uh, continued evolution. And there's a lot to debate in that. Uh, a, lot, a lot to debate. Yep. And no, no decisions have been made. Nothing's imminent, but just, but all, all good things to be thinking about. All right. And thanks to Jamil Jaffer for coming in to, uh, help with the interview. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thanks to Jamil Jaffer for joining us for this interview, and thanks to Glenn Gerstel for uh, his participation. Glenn, of course, is the general counsel of the National Security Agency and now a veteran member of the uh, intelligence community, at least the legal community. This has been Episode 203 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Step 2 and Johnson. I hope you will continue uh, to send ideas for people that we should be interviewing because we've been getting some great suggestions uh, and we're sending out mugs. Uh, the highly coveted uh, Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug uh, will go to anybody whose suggestion ends up on the program. Uh, we've got uh, two State Department uh, um, officials with cyber experience and uh, responsibilities coming up. Uh, Rob Strayer, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Cyber and International Communications at the State Department, uh, and Nathan Sales, uh, Ambassador at Large and Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the State Department uh, in two separate interviews. Uh, coming up soon. I'm going to miss one of them because I am going to be uh, introducing grandchildren to um, the joys of Western skiing at Banff next week, so uh, um, uh, you'll get a break from me. Um, And then I'll be back, and I hope you'll join uh, me and other members of the the rotating cast uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.